Perfect. All right, let's go ahead and kick it off. Let's get into initial thoughts. Let's do it. So I'm gonna go first. Uh, first one I want to talk to you about here is Southwest, right? So Southwest canceled over 11,000 flights throughout the last seven days. My flight home from New York City to Nashville was one of them. So I had to go fly JetBlue. It was a disaster to say the least, but uh, right, that's 70% of their scheduled flights were canceled. Now, I understand we had a terrible winter storm, but this just seems crazy to me. I even thought I saw that uh, some sort of regulatory folks were coming in saying, why is this happening? This shouldn't have happened. What are your thoughts? Bullish, bearish. I, I know we talk about airlines and we don't like airlines, but I feel like this is such a crazy experience. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can summarize this real quick because I was doing some research on why this was happening and why is it happening to Southwest versus every other airline. Right, right, right. And, and to summarize it real quick, so Southwest doesn't really operate as a hub, right? So a, a lot of the other airlines, United or, or Delta, for instance, right, being out of Atlanta, Delta operates out of hubs. So they have occasional expenses of putting the pilots and the attendants up in hotel rooms or whatever it might be, and those are additional expenses for the company. What Southwest tried to do in order to cut their expenses and become more profitable was instead of having a hub, they just kind of loop flights around, right? So it'd be like if you were flying from Atlanta to New York to Nashville to Dallas, they would go back to Atlanta. So it's a start to finish loop for the entire day, therefore cutting expenses. However, you fly from Atlanta to New York flight gets canceled from Nashville, but then that Nashville to Dallas flight also gets canceled. And then the Dallas to Atlanta flight also gets canceled because they only have so much crew and so many pilots. So that's kind of what happened there is that cascading effect of when one got canceled, it spread like a wildfire. So obviously they're going to have, the DOJ is going to look into it. I think I saw the White House administration is also looking into it. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot to look into. Obviously they might get, I don't know, do you get fined for that? I don't, I mean, how could practice. you though, right? I mean, like, what would they do? Just say you have a bad business model, like try again, right? I, I don't think that there's anything that you could actually like blame them for. I mean, I, it just doesn't make sense. I, I understand why they'd want to look into it, right? I would complain um, like everyone else. I was really upset about it. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you can't really control the weather. And this model works from a, you know, efficiency perspective, profitability perspective. Like it works well 99% of the time. So assuming we don't have crazy winter storms, like, you know, it, it happens. Mm. It's like force majeure, right? Uh, act of, yeah. act of yeah. God. And they get to cancel and they get to say, Hey, it is what it is. Um, but should it be that way? I mean, can I ask you, how easy was it for you to say, okay, peace out Southwest. I'm jumping on JetBlue. I'm getting home. It was pretty easy. I mean, so what I had to do, so I do enjoy Southwest. Um, my, my girlfriend's got the Southwest credit card. Like she's a big Southwest person. I also am a Southwest person. Um, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, at the end of the day, all I did was just search for different flights. The JetBlue flight was right there. It, it really wasn't a big deal. And I will say Southwest is really good about uh, the refunds and the reschedules, right? They offered to reschedule me for free. Uh, they, they gave me the credit to my account. I know I'll fly with them again. So it's not like money lost by any means. Um, it wasn't like a bad experience. It was just like inconvenient. Mm. I see Norm over here in the chat. He says the same reason why SWA flights are hab habitually late if you are at the end of the daisy chain. And so I guess that's the trade-off, right? Like if you're willing to wait, they'll let your bags fly free. Is that the whole? <laughs> I don't know. I think overall, I mean, look, it's hard to love airlines just for another reason like this. We talk about how they're uninvestable. There's just so many unknowns. Of course, they're trying to find different ways like Southwest, bravo to them, right? They've always tried to be like the punk rock company of the airline industry, try things that were unconventional, battle airport and legals in Texas when they were founded. Like they've tried things and I, I applaud them for that, but I'll stay away from their stock. Right there with you. 
Um, speaking of stock, Tesla stock. Tesla stock is down 40% during the month of December alone. And we learned from Elon Musk during Gov and Evan's Twitter space, I believe it was last week, uh, when he had joined that he's done selling Tesla stock and he's not going to sell anytime in 2023. I think that made the stock go up a little bit in after hours. But what do you think about this being down 40%? Elon's now saying he's not going to sell anymore. Bullish or bearish? I think words are cheap for him. Right. Like he told us all he wasn't going to sell again a few months back and yet he sold again. So it's like you can tell people what they want to hear, but your actions are going to speak louder than your words and you lost that branch of trust. So um, I think it's interesting. I, I'm kind of wondering. I mean, obviously, you're seeing this cascade as you're talking about. I mean, down 40 percent in a month, this this loved overvalued like growth story of, of the millennia that has just seen the fall from grace with a leader going off his axis and, and the Twitter drama and then going to, you know, seeing him pop up at the world cup and hearing about the stories of who he was talking to and his backers for, from Saudi and stuff. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously I think the thing, I think he does have a lever. Like, could you imagine if Tesla stock came down and he felt like there was a squeeze and he started feeling pressure and Elon being Elon was just like, you know what? I'm going to let Tesla buy Starlink. Hmm. hold it into the company right like or spacex or any of these other ones that he's building as a sidearm i mean that there's think why not what's to prevent that so i think that that would be stabilized and like so i think there's it's an interesting scenario right but then it's like then you're becoming a conglomerate do you want to rather ipo those later you don't want to answer the shareholders he's we saw what happened when he reacted when tesla went public and you wanted to take it back private immediately like it's an interesting scenario overall uh, I think Tesla, I mean, I was pointing out on the Twitter space, as I mentioned earlier, is like we looked at Tesla on the weekly chart and it was a perfect head and shoulders pattern from a weekly standpoint. And I think the support was around $94 uh, a share is what the completion of the pattern, right? Patterns don't always play out perfect, but the completion of the pattern would take it down to about 94, 98, somewhere in there. I forget the exact number. Um, and it hasn't reached that yet. So something that you can keep an eye on it. I think it's maybe just one of those places where it's like, it's the end of the year. People need to pull money out of somewhere. It's a highly liquid stock. And they're probably just taking Tesla down. And, you know, it doesn't hold as much weight in the S&P 500 as it used to. So that's why you see the S&P 500 not really fluctuating. Mm, I actually didn't think about that. You're right. I w Ooh. Yeah. Tesla so Tesla is yeah. actually only about 1% of the entire SPY ETF now, where it used to be like the sixth largest holding or whatever. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when did that change? Do you know? Just over the last six months. So over time, as there's been selling, as you've had the decrease in share price, I mean, they they control the ETF, right? So Apple's still over 6%, but I think right. Tesla is now like the 14th biggest holding in that ETF. So things change, right? So that's how they can stabilize it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think Tesla's a cool company and I've got, you know, a handful of shares, but I'm uh, I'm not loading the boat just yet. Um, so final thing I want to get your thoughts on here, Daniel, is there are a ton of new rule changes to retirement investing in 2023, including a bump to the Roth IRA, right? 6,000 to, to 6,500 tax credits now for small businesses to offer 401ks. I think this is up to $5,000 in tax credits, uh, and even a catch-all $1,000 penalty-free early withdrawal, uh, against your 401k that, that wasn't there before. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Are you bullish or bearish? I'm still bullish overall. I think the retirement accounts, I mean, the, the hard thing is going to be 
you can increase the 401k amounts that all you want, IRA amounts, things like that. But if inflation stays high, if wages don't keep up with inflation, I don't think you're going to see the full, you know, population really take advantage of that. Um, but I don't think it's going to go away. I, I mean, it's just, it's still that vehicle, that long-term investing vehicle for retirement for the majority of people in the working population. So with that being said, I, I am still bullish on all of those. Totally agree. Totally agree. I'm really excited about that Roth IRA, right? I mean, at the end of the day, this is the way to build your individual retirement account after taxes. So when you're 59 and a half or older, you can withdraw this money completely tax-free and uh, spend it or do whatever you want with it. So I'm pumped. Yeah, there's a lot of cool things you can do with the Roth IRA. Obviously, I just recommend to everybody go talk with a financial advisor before you go diving down into that. But yeah, a lot of cool things legally that you can do with the Roth IRA that you can't yeah. do with 401k as well. So I mean, yeah, and I mean, just to expand on that thought, right? I think we saw that Peter Thiel has some two billion dollars in his Roth IRA because he used it to buy uh, shares of Facebook pre-IPO, and then like other people are investing into Bitcoin with their Roth IRAs and in uh, real estate ventures, and it's like it's a very flexible retirement uh, tool. So more money, the better. I'm here for it. As long as Congress doesn't do anything to it to mess it up, but we'll see. Um, all right, let me get into these three things real quick. So number one. You were talking about this the other week about YouTube and the NFL Sunday ticket. So the report came out, YouTube needs at least 2.3 million subscribers to break even on NFL Sunday ticket. What do you think? Is that going to happen? Mm, you know what? So do I think it's going to happen? Sure. It'll happen eventually. Right. But I think like from my perspective, YouTube's bread and butter, their customer, their, their people um, are people that are call it Gen Z and maybe young millennials, right? I, my dad, even my uh, older cousins, like they don't, I mean, sure, like they know YouTube exists, but they're not YouTube themes, right? I'm watching YouTube videos several every single day. It's, it's something I, I love doing. And, you know, for perspective, I'm 26 years old. And I'm sure you would agree with that. You're also on YouTube having some fun, learning some cool stuff. And so I wonder if this is Google's way. And now we kind of zoom out here. My dad watches the NFL every day, right? As much as he possibly can. So I wonder if this is YouTube's way of saying, how do we now get the older folks? How do we now get people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s to care about what we're doing uh, from the, the, the perspective of the YouTube's core uh, product offering uh, videos and, and, and you know, music and things of that nature? So do I think it's going to happen? I think it eventually will happen. Uh, I've got a couple of friends that, that I know personally that are YouTube TV signup people. They, they're subscribers. Uh, I'm a YouTube uh, premium subscriber myself. But I think this could be an interesting way to try and garner a new audience to YouTube uh, through the NFL as this little catch-all. I want to ask everybody that's here listening with us right now, do you have YouTube TV? Do you love it? Is there like, I don't, I've never tried it. Right. So I, I'm completely in the dark about what the entire offering is just kind of wondering if anybody here today uh, has used it, is using it, what your thoughts are about it. Let us know in the chat. Love to see that. All right. So next up on deck, uh, this one is hilarious. And this is just completely a laughing stock for me. I laughed so hard when I first saw it and, and maybe I shouldn't have, but it's, you know, the, the era of SPACs that we just witnessed. So open door technologies, remember that company, the company that was oh, I do. Guys, buying homes, selling homes, same thing as Zillow, everything else. Well, I don't know if you looked at the stock price recently, yesterday, the stock closed at 97 cents a share. And that, to go back, perspective, right, December 21st of when it came public from its SPAC, that day, I think it was 2021, came public, shot up to over $30 a share, and to yesterday, it was $0.97. Cents. What do you make of that? That is insane. I'm, I'm not, I'll be the first to admit, I really thought 
that Open Door was going to be a company that that people used. As someone who absolutely hated the process of buying a house back in 2019, Open Door just seemed to be such a, a and it, maybe it still is, right? Uh, but it just seemed to be such a cool technology of, of, of just vertically integrating everything as it relates to buying and selling your home. I think though, now, now I will, maybe this is the contrarian view, but I think it still is. I think Open Door is still a company that people will value. I think it's a company that should have value assigned to it uh, from the perspective of investors. But I'll also admit that that value increases as the number of homes that are ex that exchange hands increases, right? And we just saw that I think the month of October was another low for housing uh, volume, right? So it's, I mean, the amount of homes that, that people are buying and selling is going down, 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 which is negatively impacting Open Door's bottom line. Even worse, I think, you know, I don't think it was profitable to begin with. Um, but will this turn around before they run out of cash? I have no idea. But I will say that I think the idea of Open Door is really cool. And if it was, if I was in the market to buy a house, I would consider using Open Door. I, I really would. Wow. All right. I mean, Look, luckily, stocks end at zero. Isn't that what people say? <laughs> they don't go negative like oil. Uh, so interesting to want to keep an eye on. All right, lastly, on deck before we go into guess the stock. Actually, I'm going to get to Stephanie's question, and, and Leslie has a comment here as well. But so Elon Musk, going back to our, our Musk man, uh, he's he came out and he said he's open on to buying Substack, the famous newsletter platform that I think probably the majority of internet users have came across, especially if you're a Twitter user. But so, so Substack is a company founded by an ex-Tesla employee, which I thought was interesting. But this comes on the heels of Twitter announcing that they're shutting down their newsletter program, which was called Revu, which they had just acquired in January of 2021. And then also, side note, earlier in the week, Elon Musk also suggested that he would try to buy Wikipedia, but the founder of Wikipedia shot him down. So is this like, do you see that happening? Will they buy Substack and then will it be integrated into Twitter? Um, so the Wikipedia thing is just funny. I remember I saw that and I went to like, just go look something up on Wikipedia and like big green, like banner at the top says, we're not for sale. Now. Like, Elon yeah. Musk, like get out of here. Right. So I think that's just kind of funny. So the idea that, that, that Elon would buy Substack. So let's just kind of back up to Revu for a second. I tried Revu. Uh, I hated it. I could not figure it out. I, I just did not enjoy the platform. And I understand why initially Twitter bought Revu back and you said 2021, because it seemed like a, a seamless integration, right? LinkedIn has their own, you know, organic newsletter kind of offering. I'm not comparing LinkedIn to, to Twitter, but, you know, it's, it's very, um, you know, written format type social media. So it, it made a lot of sense, right? For Twitter to buy Substack, I think would be a massive dub for both companies. I really enjoy Substack. I was writing on Substack for a very long time. Um, and I, I, I think that being able to seamlessly get people to take what they're already spending countless hours writing on this platform of Substack to perhaps repurpose on Twitter. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is just a, a equation of synergies, right? How much content can we get that people are already posting elsewhere to also be on our platform? And how do we seamlessly turn those into threads or seamlessly turn those into uh, you know, podcasts? Because I know like Substack, for example, if you publish a article over there, you can click play and they'll like 
you know, Siri voice speak it to you in your ear, kind of like a podcast, right? So I just, I feel like there's a ton of synergies that could be figured out. And if they're able to figure out in the right way, um, I'd be excited. I think that's a really cool acquisition. I had not seen that, that this is like my actual initial thought. I had not, I had no idea this was a thing. That's so cool. Yeah. I think it's pretty well. I mean, like and all Twitter will do is take a fee, right. For bringing the audience yeah. and everything yeah. else. I mean, the, the amount of people that are already on Twitter, I mean, that's, that's a revenue driver. And that's how I think about it, at least. So interesting thought there. Also, so I want to jump over here. Stephanie says, what are your views regarding the Apple partnership with MLS for baseball? Stephanie, personally, I think it's just, you know, IP is key. Who owns the IP? Who owns the content? And and people that love baseball will sign up for Apple Plus. People that want to watch football might now sign up for YouTube TV. So same way with Disney and Netflix and all these other streaming services, they're all just fighting for the content of the world. Um, Austin, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so Stephanie actually just called out soccer, not baseball. Oh, sorry, MLS. soccer. My bad. My bad. ML. Um, so I am not yet an Apple TV customer, but as someone who just got the new iPhone 14 for Christmas, I am very happily surprised to see that every time I open up my settings app inside my phone, I'm always being prompted to say, hey, you got like 42 more days to sign up for Apple TV for three months. For like, that. I think that's a really interesting way. You know, Apple is really trying to put some gasoline on this idea of, of Apple TV. Um, you know, kind of like what, what Disney did, maybe this isn't, you know, exactly apples for apples, but, you know, Disney bought the IP of Star Wars and Marvel. It's like, People love these franchises. Let's acquire them and let's make them better if we can, right? Uh, people love baseball. Let's acquire the idea of baseball and make them better if we can. Um, I have no idea what that means for Apple. I'm not a big sports guy, so it's hard for me to kind of predict anything along that. But um, to your point, I think if you own the IP, you own uh, the fan base. Yeah. Leslie over here says, I don't have YouTube TV, but I would get it if Amazon Prime fails with its Thursday night football and bid for NFL games. So there you go. Another soccer, or sorry, a, a sport perspective of saying, I will go where the sport is. And then Terrence says, yes, I have YouTube TV, great interface, lots of channels and better than Hulu. Terrence, better than Hulu, man. Okay. So let me tell you, Daniel, I have been really struggling to want to keep my Hulu subscription, right? So I don't know if you remember the Baker Mayfield commercials uh, when Hulu just got live sports, he was like holding money all, all over the place. He's like, Hulu got live sports. Hulu got live sports. And I had just cut the cord and I was like, Hulu, $45 a month. I'm in for it. Live sports. Let's do it. And I was paying my 45, 50 bucks a month after tax. I loved it. I got the channels, the, the, the sports, the games. I just checked because I, it's creeping up on my expenses here on my budget. $83 a month is what I'm paying now for the exact same thing I bought back in 2018 right? Hmm. And so I don't know what that compares to with YouTube TV. But if Terrence is over here saying that they really like YouTube TV, and it's better than Hulu, and I'm paying 82 bucks a month for Hulu, which mind you cuts in and out during sports games here and there is a little laggy, the interface isn't great. Um, I might be switching, I really might be switching. Terrence, can I ask you, does YouTube TV also run ads? Right? Hulu has the different ad tiers, Disney has ad tiers, Netflix has ad tiers, maybe there's tiers to YouTube TV. I'll have to, I'll have to explore that actually. Check that out. So I want to go ahead and keep it moving. Let's get into guess the stock. Everybody that's here joining us, maybe you're here for the first time. Thanks for showing up, hanging out with us. So what this is, is I just give you a few fun facts about a company that we're covering today. Now, most of you probably don't know what this is, um, but if you have an idea of what the company is or the ticker symbol, you can either use the name or the ticker, drop it down in the chat, and we'll let you know if you get it or if you are not that good at it. But anyway, so starting this off, number one. This large cap tech company is based out of San Jose, California. It is founded in 1982 out of a garage. 
And this company is named after the creek that ran behind the founder's house. The founders developed a technology called PostScript that all major printers use today for printing images. Now, this one's interesting to me. Steve Jobs tried to acquire this company for $5 million in 1982. The founders turned him down, but eventually sold him shares for 19% of the company, plus a five-year licensing agreement for the PostScript license, making this company the first business in Silicon Valley to ever be profitable in its first year. We're getting some guesses over here. I got two more for you. The company IPO'd on the NASDAQ in 1986. And this one is the one that blew my mind. On May 26, 1992, one of the co-founders of this company arrived to the parking lot at work and was kidnapped at gunpoint by two men leading to a crazy hostage scenario involving the FBI saving the co-founder. Do you know that? No, I, I didn't know that. That's crazy. You can go into it if you want to, but yeah. So one of the co-founders was literally held hostage in 1992. And like, I think the ransom was like for $650,000 and they called his wife and his wife went through this like whole paranoia thing. The co-founder started freaking out. Like it was a moment in time. So we've got some guesses over here, man, Norm with the, yep. <laughs> so obviously majority of you got it here today. Terrence got it. Robert got it. Bruno got it. Greg got it as well. It is Adobe. Alan is not HPE. Welcome to Adobe Systems Incorporated, or as we know it now today, Adobe Inc. Austin, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Give us a little detail about the, uh, about the company. Before I kick us off, I just want to know how all these people know it's Adobe, right? I am generally pretty well-versed in the dark arts of the stock market. And if you were just telling me about this, this backstory, I wouldn't have guessed Adobe. That's so cool. I just, oh, IT people know PostScript. Got it, Norm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So what I'm hearing is everyone that guessed Adobe right is an IT person. They work in IT. No, I'm just kidding. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, let's get into it, right? So this week's company is Adobe. Uh, again, this is a company I'd imagine we're all loosely familiar with. But in case this is your first time hearing about the company, I'm going to drop some, some names of their products just so we're on the same page. You've likely heard of them, right? Photoshop, Premiere Pro, Illustrator, Lightroom, After Effects, and of course, Acrobat Pro. So you guys all know what we're talking about, I would imagine, so let's jump into it. Um, Adobe is a $155 billion company that operates three business segments, digital media, digital experience, and publishing and advertising. Their digital media business segment is mainly the products I had mentioned before. Uh, these help anyone and everyone trying to create awesome images or videos. And this business segment reported making over $12.8 billion in revenue throughout the last 12 months, their largest business segment by far. I think it's about a 72 to 75% of all revenue. Next up is their digital experience business segment. This is mainly uh, technology that enables their customers with the ability to offer personalized digital experiences to their end users, right? This includes data insights, specific content built just for them, among other customer-first products. This business segment generated over $4.4 billion in revenue over the last 12 months. And finally, we've got the company's publishing and advertising business segment. Think of this one as kind of like a catch-all segment. I mean, if I were to describe it, uh, I would describe it as that, kind of like it's just a hodgepodge of a bunch of different things. You can think of like web conferencing, e-learning solutions, high-end printing. I know Daniel talked about the, the, the image printing. Uh, web application development is kind of just like a, a cool mixture here of, of really interesting 
services and products. Uh, it only made up 2% of total revenue over the last 12 months, coming in at about $342 million. So uh, a very small business segment. Daniel, I think there's a really cool image that we might have that kind of breaks down these business segments uh, from a revenue perspective. Uh, maybe we can pull it up. Uh, not that one, not that one. I think it's the one that, um, oh gosh, what's his name? He makes these awesome images for yep, us all the time. Second. Let me find out what slide number that is. Oh, sorry, slide 10, Josh. Go ahead and pull up slide 10 for me if you can. Because this is, so this is our good friend, Bertrand Seguin. Obviously, if you've yep. been listening to the show for a long time, he's been on with us. He will be on with us again next year. We want to get him back on, but he puts out these beautiful charts that really breaks down what the company does, how it makes money, where it spends its money, I mean, do you have things you want to point out here? I'll let you take it away. No, I just wanted to show everyone like really quickly, right? And this is over the last quarter because, um, you know, the, the, the numbers I mentioned were, were annualized. But you can see just how big that digital media uh, business segment is coming in about that 75% of, of revenue. Then that digital experience coming in a bit less than that. And then that small, small publishing and advertising business segment. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And actually, while we have this up, I want to go ahead and put in a couple of facts just because we're talking about the digital media segment, right? So this, this company is full of acquisitions throughout its entire history. And it's more recently that you're seeing this expansion into these other uh, publishing and digital experience and things like that. So I'm going to give you a couple of facts that I found throughout its history. So the first creative application program that Adobe ever released was actually Adobe Illustrator and the year was 1987. Photoshop actually was not even developed in-house, but rather it was acquired from the Knoll brothers who licensed the ability for distribution of, to Adobe in 19, uh, 1988 and then later to Microsoft in 1993, which was interesting to me, right? You think about like Windows was built for business. Apple's main drive was think different, be an artist, use our computer for this. So it, it made so much for, sense for them just to team up early on. And Steve Jobs, right? It was He was the innovator, as I mentioned earlier, he bought 19% of the company. Definitely a cool integration there. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't invent the portable document format, which we now know and in, in shorthand call it as PDF until 1991 which led to libraries being able to be archived due to the search for specific words feature that it introduced. So imagine that before uh, 1991, you couldn't go to a web page and hit control F and find and search for words. Adobe's PDF helped lead to that. And that then we talked about wild. I had no so idea. Adobe Premiere, right? Which is video editing. Well, they didn't release that until 1991. Adobe After Effects, which is the visual effects application, was an acquisition that Adobe made in 1994 from the company of science and art who had initially created that. And then Adobe Audition, which is their audio mixing application, which is all this is digital media, right? That was another acquisition, and the software was originally called Cool Edit Pro. So they've been acquiring all these companies over here. Oh, sorry, one more I forgot about. This one, and this one's really weird. So they somehow managed to acquire their main competitor, Macromedia, right? Think about regulation environments and everything. They acquired their main competitor, Macromedia, which added Cold Fusion and maybe a little application that you might have heard of before called Adobe Flash. Remember when Adobe, Adobe Flash, like, Flash ran the internet? Oh All videos, gosh. games, and everything was Adobe Flash. Well, what happened to Adobe Flash? Uh, the year was, I believe, 2011 when they finally axed the Adobe Flash application altogether and moved to HTML5. But the backstory is it's all Steve Jobs' fault because he would not allow Adobe Flash to be run on the Apple iPhone 
due to his claims that it was not power efficient and there were security concerns and it didn't operate properly with the touch functionality that Apple iPhone was known for. So after that, I think Steve Jobs wrote a public letter about it actually. And after that moment, Adobe was like, all right, we're getting rid of Flash. Let's focus on HTML5. This is all during the time of the transition to the web, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, from their applications being sold in boxes, CD-ROMs, putting on your computer. Now it's all web-based for the most part. Um, and then they switched that entire business model leading to where we are today. What a badass to just be able to say, you know what? Despite this powering the entire internet, it doesn't work good on my device. So I don't want this to happen anymore. That's crazy to me. Right. Jeez. Um, all right. So let's let's talk about you know, Adobe from, from the business. And we can keep this image up if you guys like. I think it's a really pretty one. So, you know, what is this, right? What's, what's the deal here? This is your tried and true SaaS company. One of the OGs, right? I think Daniel mentioned that they IPO'd uh, several years ago. The company's business segments, specifically digital media, operate on a subscription model. For example, their digital media business segment is running at a $13.3 billion in annual recurring revenue, right? That's so much Money now compare that only to 8.7 billion in annual recurring revenue back just in 2019. That's a 52% increase in ARR, the subscription revenue that investors love to see in only a few years. Um, and you know, because they're a SaaS company, their gross profit margins are incredible, right? The whole company uh, is running at 88% gross profit margins. You can see in this image that the digital media, that that specific um, subscription business segment is 95% gross profit margin. So we love that. Uh, this this 88% though for the entire company has expanded from 86% over the last two years. So there's certainly margin expansion still happening in the business, despite it being such an old, quote unquote, old company. Um, this margin expansion has aided their operating margin to grow over the last several years as well, from 1.5 billion in 2016 to 6.1 billion this year, right? That's a 4x in six years. That's wild to me. But this is what happens when you build a business uh, that, that has a, a suite of products, obtains countless sticky customers, and then upsells their customers on new stuff every single year. So now, Josh, if you don't mind flipping over to the other image of Adobe stock chart, I think it's, uh, it's like a Slide black two, line. And yeah. We'll pull that up here in a second. Um, but you know, kind of to preface that, I got to be with you guys, right? Adobe's stock price is in a death spiral. I mean, we just kind of see it peaked during this like late 2020, early 2021 era. And it's just been a nightmare ever since. Uh, it, you know, this is because I'd imagine a lot of COVID induced momentum happened during 2020, right? Everyone was going digital. We had to start running digital ads. We had to start doing website, like everything was digital. Um, so that was, I would imagine that the big momentum uh, push during that time. But now that their net new ARR from that digital media business segment is beginning to slow down very much. Um, I think it's down 12 or 13% year over year. And we have, you know, recessionary fears. I would imagine marketing, right, is one of the first things that people don't spend money on. It's it's uh, when, when times are tough. I think a lot of Adobe's business segments very well aid into marketing efforts. So if no one's spending money on marketing, what's going to happen to Adobe, right? There's a lot of reasons that investors are kind of scared right now. Um, but, but, you know, right now their stock is trading at about 20 times forward operating cash flow. Notice that operating cash flow, not free cash flow. Um, something that normally hovers around like a 31 times range. So, you know, as you can see with this blue line, it's quote unquote 
historically undervalued. The black line is their stock price. The blue line is their projected operating cash flow growth. It's forecasted to trend up 12% in 2023, 14% in 2024, and 16% in 2025. And according to their analyst scorecards, there's an 86% chance that these forecasts are going to be correct. Daniel, do you have any thoughts on just what the stock price has done, you know, over the last 12 months? It's been, I mean, it reminds me of Tesla over the last December, right? But it's just been crazy to see how violently this thing sold off. And it kind of reminds me, um, I, I think, is it Warren Buffett that said that the stock market is, is like a, a drunk where sometimes it does crazy stuff to the upside and crazy stuff to the downside, but over the long term, it kind of levels itself out. Yeah, I mean, you laid out the perfect story, right? You had the rise in prices because everything went digital. We see in the gray bar there, that's when COVID hit and we had the the brief COVID recession. I mean, the thing you also got to remember, though, is the stock is not the company, right? Stock prices fluctuate like you're talking about, but it's not the underlying company. Now, there's, I mean, you see the most recent cliff there that just happened based off of the most recent earnings. That was due to them announcing the Figma uh, planned acquisition, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, so yeah, there might be, I think it depends on your time horizon. And I was going to save this until the end, cause I had a kind of like a recap I was going to do, but I think it, it's worth mentioning here is that, um, so we talked about Bertrand Seguin. He put out an, an incredible article on app economy portfolio, which you can find on seeking alpha as well. Uh, detailing Adobe, what's going on with the revenue highlighted moments from the transcript of the earnings call, things like that. And he pretty much said that, all right. And this is a quote. So where the price is now, Adobe has shaved more than $30, $30 billion off of its market cap. So any new investors to this company are essentially getting Figma for free if this goes through. So it, I think it depends on what's your time horizon, right? As always. And then also, are you a shareholder already or are you not? Or is this something that you're into? I like that. I like that perspective a lot. That's a really good segue into the Figma acquisition, right? So investors... I think we're really caught off guard by this. And there's a little bit of math that I did on the back end. It might not be, you know, the, a lot of guesses and a lot of estimations, but it kind of, you know, puts things in perspective, right? So about six months ago, Adobe announced their intentions to acquire the software design company Figma for $20 billion. That $20 billion is going to be paid half in cash and half in stock, right? So $10 billion cash, $10 billion stock. The company... Weirdly enough, though, only has $6 billion in cash and short-term investments on their balance sheet. I think it's like even just $4 billion in straight cash, $2 billion in short-term investments um, at, at the moment, which means it's not unreasonable to expect that Adobe is going to have to borrow most of that $10 billion. And if we assume that they borrow maybe, let's call it, I don't know, $8 billion of that $10 billion in cash, interest rates right now for debt uh, like this are hovering around this five, six, maybe even 7% range, depending on the debt instrument that they use, right? There's a ton of different ways that they can raise this cash, but I'd imagine 5% for it is a very fair guess. That means 5%, right, on $8 billion is a $400 million a year interest expense that's now coming out of the bottom line that investors have to account for. Um, that's a lot of money, right? $400 million a year. But you might also say like, okay, Austin, but like Figma is going to do 400 million in revenue or ARR in 2022, it's going to continue to grow. It'll offset that. Like, sure, maybe like, I think that's a great way to think about it. But on the same token, it's like, how is that going to change in 2023 if we do see a hard landing, uh, some sort of recession? Um, you know, to your point, Daniel, I think all in all, the Figma acquisition is going to be a near-term headwind. I think uh, that's just to say the least, right? I think there's a lot of uncertainty about this deal right now. 
uh, that's keeping investors scared of what might happen. What's that interest? How do I account for that? It, how much cash we're going to borrow? How's it you know, with the stock? Is it going to dilute? Like, what does this mean? There's a lot of just like stuff, questions, weird feedback that, that people are trying to figure out. But for the company of Adobe itself, right? And, and to um, our, our fellow marketplace uh, friend, uh, you know, the quote there, um, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I think Adobe has a lot of awesome products. I like the company a lot. I use their products personally. Um, my friends use their products. I think that Figma is an awesome company. And I think if they're able to buy Figma and close the deal at a reasonable price, they will be an unstoppable monster. When I say a reasonable price, I, I mean the, the interest expense, right? They're going to be a unstoppable monster. The question is today, at what price do you feel is fair from a risk reward perspective to pay for the stock, right? Um, you know, you had just quoted that now it's down 30 billion since the announcement of the acquisition. So essentially getting Figma for free, right? That could be the case. Are you comfortable with that? I don't know, right? Everyone has their own perspectives there. Um, but I do think Adobe is a really cool company. Again, I use it. I love the margins. I love the subscription base. Um, I'm okay to see that the net new ARR is slowing down. I think we had an insane 2020. I think you're up against hard comps, right? There's a lot of different reasons, um, why I'm optimistic about Adobe in the long term. It just comes down to how quickly can we get the specific details of the Figma acquisition figure out, figured out, disclosed, and just you know wrapped up. And I think once that's done, the stock's gonna likely uh, get much come back to historical norms if that makes sense. Yeah, I've got a lot that I agree with and a few things that I don't agree with. So I, okay. I want to give like a full. I've got this. We'll call it the Daniel deep dive. Right. Let's just run through this because you made a lot of good points and there's a lot of questions that people might have right now. So starting from the top end, right, revenue for the full fiscal year of 2022 was 17.61 billion dollars. OK, well, how does that break out? Because it's it, they sell overseas as well. Well, America makes up 59 percent of that revenue. Twenty six percent comes from EMEA, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and 15 percent from Asia. Foreign exchange headwinds, of course, we've been talking about that a lot lately. Hopefully that ends sometime soon because it gets really annoying. Well, that knocked off four point or four uh, percentage points in this most recent quarter. So keep that in mind. If that can stabilize, that's also going to benefit them. Uh, earnings per share was $3.60, but their gross profit margin is in the high 80s. It's like 89%. Actually, I've got one of those slides. Josh, can you go to slide? Let me see what the slide number it is. We're going to go ahead and look at the growth grade here of Seeking Alpha. That's slide number eight. The profitability here. So it's 87.70% is the gross profit margin. I mean, that is unheard of compared to the overall sector. The five-year average has been 86%. They're growing the mar the gross profit margins. I'm sure, it's not by much, but look at that. The sector median is only 49%. So they're definitely able to profit off of everything going on, no matter what. So I, you, you talk about the $400 million in interest expenses. Yes, that's going to be an issue. However, S&P Global, Moody's, both have a great credit rating for the company. Uh, you had mentioned they had, what was it, $6 billion in cash and cash equivalents with investments, 6.1, long-term debt of $3.6 billion for this company. The dollar-based net retention was greater than 150%, of course, meaning that revenue from existing customer grows by 50% year over mm -hmm, year. Mm -hmm, net mm -hmm. of terms. That's very favorable, right? They just raised the prices of Creative Cloud, the digital media side of things. I think it was like by 50 bucks for the year. But it goes back to like when we were talking about- Wait, wait, wait. Uh, the 150% I thought was for Figma. Is that is that for Adobe as well? 
I think I pulled it directly from their, I think that may have come from App Economy Portfolio. Interesting. Okay, because I was just reading I can double this. check that though and get back to you. Um, yes, they're, they're uh, actually was that? And maybe I, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure it's for Adobe. It was from their um, analyst day most recently back in, I think it was October that they held. Uh, I think is where I pulled that actually. Um, so anyways, the financials are very strong overall. Let's go ahead and go back to the previous slide, Josh. It's the valuation grade here on Seeking Alpha as well. And we're going to kind of go backwards. Usually I go forwards. But obviously, I mean, look, there's your P and on gap. There's your peg ratio, everything else. It's looking pretty favorable, even though the Adobe valuation is a D plus right now. Obviously, it's one of those. It's a software company, right? It maybe is going to stay overvalued, but the profitability is through the roof. I like where this company is headed. Um, let's go ahead and go back to the summary for the ratings from Seeking Alpha. That's slide three, Josh, and just give everybody the full rundown. So Seeking Alpha authors on this stock currently have a buy. Wall Street analysts across the street all on average hold a buy. And the Seeking Alpha quant system is a hold. And then let me give you one second. Take a quick look at that. There's the numbers for you as well. Next slide, please. For the factor grades, valuation is a D plus. Growth is a D plus. Well, if you're acquiring companies, if you're strategic, and I mean, Look at the stock price. They've been doing it time and time again. Profitability, A+. Plus. Momentum is a B. Obviously, all the stock pullback of the prices, as we've been mentioning. And then, of course, the revisions on the street are D+. Plus. And that's more recently, ever since the Figma thing. But when it comes to Figma, and we'll dive more into this in a second, it's like, they. I think they had to buy Figma, right? Like, Oh, they Figma, had to. They had no choice. It's just been- like with Apple buying uh, Beats by Dre, right? If Apple wanted to, to, to have those AirPods actually be a thing, you know, it wasn't cool, but they had to buy Dre, Beats by Dre to completely shut down, you know, buy and, and let it die. Um, I don't think that they're going to let Figma die, right? But like, I think that they had no choice, 100%. And, and on, the, on the point being, of Figma there. On the point of that, imagine like being Apple, having worked on the R&D of AirPods for years and spending mm-hmm. all this money and then looking at Beats and being like, oh crap, we're screwed. Like, yeah. what do we do here? Well, we have to acquire them. Like, well, let's try to get them for the cheapest amount we can. Now, going into the Figma acquisition real quick. So the product just came available to the public in 2016. And this is Figma. Between April 2020 and May 2021, Figma's valuation increased from a $2 billion valuation to $10 billion. Roughly 4 million people use Figma, including big tech companies like Dropbox, Rakuten, Slack, Twitter, and Volvo. So you're seeing a lot of big customers backing this competitor of yours. And oh, by the way, let's go ahead and go to slide number, stick with me one second. This is straight from their uh, investing deck. Slide number 16, Josh, and throw that up. We're jumping all over today. There's so much here with the creative and the story here. If we go to slide number 16, we can talk about they started as desktop applications, right? So as you can see here, you got Photoshop, you know, Lightroom for photos, Audition for audio, After Effects, Visual Effects, Media Encoder, Premiere for video editing. You got Dreamweaver, you got Illustrator, you have all of these great applications they built. And they've been converting them to mobile apps recently, as you know, Photoshop can be used on the iPad, Lightroom as well. They're working on transitioning these things, but now they're going for web-based applications so that they can get rid of having the application run on a personal computer altogether, if not needed. Put everything in the cloud, put everything in the browser, have somebody go to a browser through a website, and bada-bing, bada-boom, there you go. Then you leverage Adobe Cloud let them store all their files in there, creating that stickiness effect. Well, I can't leave Adobe. They have all my photos. They have all my videos. They have all this X, Y, Z. You're creating that stickiness with the customer, right? What I see here on the web-based applications is they don't have Dreamweaver, which is the web building. uh, I believe it's their web-based building kind of software that they use. It's not web-based yet. 
And you just see this Figma corporation come up, release their application. Everybody starts adapting it, creating websites in Figma. Oh, by the way, it's almost a little bit like an illustrator. And oh, by the way, it's almost a little bit like a Photoshop. So of course you start to see this competition coming on here. So what do you do? You buy them at whatever cost you have to buy them just to shut them down, which is the same thing Adobe did. If you remember what I said earlier, when they bought their competitor Macromedia, which gave them Adobe Flash, that was their biggest competitor at the time. And they were able to get the acquisition through. So this Figma acquisition could be huge for them. And while we're talking about that, I was going to do an Adobe breakdown. So let's talk about their competition. Who's their competitors, right? For video editing, you have DaVinci Resolve which is a free-based video editing application, which apparently is starting to really pick up steam. And then you have Apple's Final Cut Pro, which used to be really great, and now it's kind of dwindled out. For website building, of course, there's like still Squarespace, there's Wix, there's out-of-box applications, but when you really want to customize something, most people turn to Figma. Graphic design, you have Canva, which is like that huge female-led company. I think it's out of Australia, actually. Massive mm -hmm. valuation, mm -hmm. not public yet, but there still is that. Um, which might be in favor for Adobe with them trying to acquire Figma because they can say, hey, we're not going to monopolize this. Obviously, there's Canva over here. They can still do graphic design. They can still work on that. So that was interesting. Then you have everything in the 3D space, right? They have a couple of 3D applications where you can go in and you can model 3D, uh, whatever, trees, locations, people, you know, characters. Uh, well, the world of 3D is also run by Unreal Engine and Unity applications, so they have competitors there. And then from the AI perspective, because they have what's called Adobe Sensei, which is completely rev revolutionizing like the way to remove things out of images in Photoshop or completely almost you know, scene edit detection in Adobe Premiere. It can equalize your audio for you. Like They're just trying to create the efficiency, and they are leading the charge with Adobe Sensei. I mean, it can caption video files for you based on their cloud servers. I mean, they are doing a lot of stuff great there. But you know, who else is doing AI images? Can you say Dolly 2 from OpenAI? It doesn't really work. Yeah, so it's yeah. Not full competition everywhere yet, but they do have a lot of competitors, which might help them squeeze this acquisition through the regulators, right? Talking about regulation, they are regulated in regards to the US government, Europe, other jurisdictions that they operate in. So there is that. Uh, let's talk about their suppliers, right? Who are their suppliers? Well, they're digital, but they're not digital on just one cloud provider. They started with Amazon Web Servers. And then in 2016, they announced they're linking a deal with Microsoft's Azure. And they're spreading out across cloud computing systems to get everything web-based so that no matter where you are in the world, you can ping to the nearest web development center and still have incredible speeds. Brilliant. Guys are absolutely brilliant. So the customers, so many customers, I don't even need to go down that path. And then lastly, I want to talk about management. This guy, the CEO right now, Shant, I, I'm totally going to butcher this name, Shantanu Narayan, I hope it's somewhat close to how you say it. So who is this guy? This guy is incredible. So he was born in India, raised in India, came to the States. In 1986, he joined a Silicon Valley startup called MeasureX Automation Systems, which made computer control systems for automotive and electronic customers. He then moved to Apple. Hello, Steve Jobs, right? Weird. Is it weird? It's weird. Where he was in senior management positions from 1989 to 1995. After Apple, he served as director of desktop and collaboration products for Silicon Graphics. In 1996, he co-founded Pictra Incorporated, a company that pioneered the concept of digital photo sharing over the internet. 
hello, he was doing photos. He wasn't doing YouTube. Uh, and then he joined Adobe in 1998 as a senior vice president of worldwide product development, which he led through 2001. From 2001 to 2005, he was executive vice, vice president of worldwide products. And then in 2005, he was appointed president and COO. And then in 2007, he became CEO, where he has led the charge of getting applications off your computer and towards the cloud. The guy's been here forever. He and is a. Let me man. add to Daniel. I believe I could be a little bit wrong on this, but I believe he is a top five, if not the number one highest rated CEO on Glassdoor. Seriously, I believe really? he's yes. I, I really he's either number one or like top five. I remember I did a TikTok video about this because I think there's an ETF coming out of like the best highly rated CEOs and in investing in their companies. And I was like, so let's figure out who they are. And I think number one was the CEO of Adobe. Hmm. That is very interesting. I mean, the guy's been around for a while. And like, obviously, they have this big conference called Adobe Max they do every year, which I always tune into being a content creator, looking to see what they're coming up with next. They have tons of stuff in beta. I mean, then you go into, I mean, I touched on a lot of the digital media side of things, right? I didn't talk about the documents where they have the ability to, to compete against DocuSign with the ability to sign contracts yep, yep. with their software. Then you have the Adobe Experience, which is analytics across the web, which is transforming how businesses run and operate and how they design their websites, knowing all the data that's there. I mean, this company is completely leading the charge still within the entire information techno technical sector. Um, so lastly, the two things I want to point out, and then I want to look at the stock price real quick on the, on the charts, is the interesting thing to me is that this company doesn't pay a dividend. Did you notice that? I did notice that. I did notice that. And I understand why, right? I mean, like, I think it was in 2013 or 2014, they really flipped toward the subscription model, right? Uh, and because of that, you know, I, I, you know, we had 1.5 billion or so in 2016 in operating income. Now it's up to 6.5. Like that's grown a lot, but, you know, just think about it four or five years ago in a company that's 40 years old, that's a very short period of time. And they're just now sort of quote unquote profitable, right? Um, so I understand why they're not paying a dividend, but I would hope to see a dividend if they're going to stay on this track, especially from a, you know, operating cash flow and, and free cash flow perspective. Yeah. And then the other thing I just wanted to point out for everybody is their next earnings. They wrapped up their earnings for this year. Their next earnings call will be March 15th after the close. And you know, I'm going to be waiting for that one because this company is still incredible to me. I mean, personally, I think Figma acquisition, I think this acquisition will close. And, and I know they're anticipating for it to close this next year. I would highly think that I agree with that just based off of there's still a lot of competitors within that space. They still can claim that, hey, we're not creating a monopoly. We're just blending synergies. But I mean, they've got Frame.io. Oh, I didn't even point out that slide, Josh. They've we got, got Frame.io? They bought Frame.io. Yeah. No so way. Okay, now I'm just more excited. All this right, is crazy. On. I have a slide here. There's so many slides. I should have completely did this out of order stick with me guys but um let's see here slide number 17 please josh and this is just going through the history you'll see the timeline at the bottom from when it started in 1982 to 2022 it doesn't have everything here but on the far left side of course you have them starting with postscript and then adobe photoshop which they acquired the licensing deal to distribute then they invented adobe pdf they bought their competitor macromedia giving them flash then you go on the Omniture, and then you go in the cloud when they started the cloud space. And more recently, you see the color little A at the top there, and that's what they're calling Adobe. I think it's Express, if I remember correctly. That's the competitor to Canva, actually, right? It's like go to a website, expressively like create your little social media pose, your graphic for your business, whatever it is. I think that's what that is. And then, of course, Figma, where we are today. But yeah, they've got Frame.io. They've, they've acquired a ton of people along the way. It's just like Apple. 
I mean, the comp- the company has a great roadmap ahead of itself. Um, DaVinci Resolve, from the video editing standpoint, I will say is a competitor that I continue to see to grow here. Uh, but will that, you know, crush every other part of their business? Absolutely not. So I think it's really nice what they've set up. I love what the management's done here. I love the share price here and saying share price. Let's go ahead and look at the chart real quick. Josh, would you mind taking that slide down for me? This is so that's what I was going to ask you, Daniel. You know, you, yeah. you gave me this really good walkthrough, the Daniel deep dive. And you said you like the share price here, right? So, so what's the price that you're buying at? What's the price that you're happy to say, you know what? I'm picking up some shares. So let's look at this, right? So this is right now the weekly chart, which we're looking at. And I've, I've went ahead and marked a few things. The white dotted line here at the bottom is the COVID low, okay? So obviously we've seen a massive increase, which you saw earlier is bouncing along the 20 day, 50 day, because everybody was doing everything from the web. Everybody was at home, Adobe Creative. I mean, think about it, video editors, graphic designers, everybody became hot demand for every business everywhere. And of course we've seen this pullback. Let's go into the daily chart and you'll see what all these other ones are. There's a lot of gaps on this chart, right? You know, I talk about gaps, 80% time, eighty of the time they fill and then 80% of the time they also reverse course on either a gap fill or the bottom or top of the gap. So always things to watch there just for initial price reaction. What else do we have here? So we have massive gaps above the market from earlier this year. Let's look at more recently what's going on here. So volumes turned down a little bit, but we're seeing this, what some, you know, would call another pattern here. It's just consolidating, okay? What does this consolidation mean? This consolidation means that there's going to be a nice price move coming one way or the other, okay? Obviously, we're in the middle of this gap. There's a gap below the market. There's a gap above the market. We've got some moving average convergences here. We got the 20, the 50, and the 100 all converging in the same place. Talk about massive consolidation. And so obviously, I'm watching a couple of the Fibonacci levels here. This goes back from August 16th to the lows here around uh, September 30th. Um, of course, weird price action, right? Going back to when they announced Figma, when you saw the massive fall off in share price, because what did they say? We're going we're gonna to have to take on debt. I mean, I think it was, what's the exact quote? They said, we know we're going to have to take on debt in order to get this closed. We're going to do short-term debt instruments and use uh, some of our cash to finance the finance the acquisition as well as the share price or sorry the uh the shares like you mentioned um so of course that's going to you know dilute existing shareholders maybe not everybody agrees with this etc but i think here at this level you know i'm i'm continually to watch the valuation overall the growth metrics here on seeking alpha as well but that profitability is huge the profitability of this company and having 80% of gross margin, I mean, that opens up the cash. And not to mention, they're still doing share buybacks. 88, 88% of gross margin, yeah. 88% gross margin and the share buybacks, which they authorized $15 billion of which in December of 2020, they haven't used all of that yet. And they have until 2024 to use an additional $6.5 billion that was approved in order to, to do share buybacks. So, I mean, there's a lot to like personally, in my own opinion. So I think I would personally start to nibble around this area. I, I mean, obviously, I'm not one to go and jump into a full position right away. That's not how I personally invest. I would 100% start to scale in, um, but dictate it overall with the weighting of the information technology sector that I already have in my portfolio. I think that's totally fair. I'm right there with you. Um, you know, I... The thing I've been so excited about. I remember when Adobe was like 600 bucks a share, 500 bucks a share. Right? I was just, I just remember how excited I've been about waiting, being patient. Like, so I mean, we saw this coming. Um, their technology stock, we saw a lot of multiple compression and earnings compression uh, over the last 12 months. Um, I'm pumped. I, I do. 
plan to um, continue expanding my position right now. It's, it's very small, a um, couple shares, right? But I have every intention as the stock continues to consolidate or either, you know, kind of crab back and forth to um, expand my position. Full transparency. That's where I'm at. Love it. Josh, let's go. I got one more slide for you guys. Can we go to slide 20, Josh? I just got to show you this because when I think about, you know, our company is going to leave this company for graphic design and everything else, the Adobe experience, the PDFs, the, the, the digital media side of thing, which we saw earlier was, um, let me just go back and reference real quick to give you the exact number. Digital media was 95% gross margin and brought in $3.3 billion this year on the income statement. I mean, it's just like a complete powerhouse. You look at all these companies here and you just recognize all of them, right? They just stand out to you. DHL, General Healthcare, United Health Group, uh, Marriott, Nike, Sky. I mean, it's like, these are powerhouse companies that are all just channeling some of their expenses into Adobe's revenue. And that just makes me happy. Like I look at I that. And these are really solid companies. So um, just something for everybody to keep in mind. Hopefully you enjoyed the research that we presented to you today. Josh, go ahead and throw up that last slide for me. If you guys have stock ideas that you want us to cover on the show, investing experts at seekingalpha.com. You can email us, of course. We would love to have you leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts as well. We wish you all a happy holidays. Let us know if you uh if you like Adobe at these levels. I like Adobe at these levels. I love I like Adobe at these levels. I do. I do. Hopefully everybody here loved the deep dive today. Norm, thanks for hanging out with us. Excellent analysis as usual, guys. Appreciate you, Norm. Alan says, happy new year. Happy new year right back to you. Everybody stay safe the rest of this week. Enjoy the low liquidity week. Don't look at the screen. Go hang out with family and friends. But we appreciate you guys showing up and hanging out with us. Off topic, what happened to Mike Saul? Unfortunately, we did sunset the Mike Saul webinars. It makes us all very sad. But we appreciate that you're here now. So without further ado... Austin, anything else? I'm oh, good. Uh, happy holidays. Hanging How's out. Cash flow freaks? You guys got a lot We're of having stuff. fun, man. Cash flow freaks yeah. is fun. Absolutely. We actually just did a deep dive into the uh, what will soon be a $2 million portfolio by the end of the decade. We're investing between $100,000 and $150,000 toward it just this year. So if you want to see what that looks like, if you want to see the holdings specifically, check out Cash Flow Freaks. I love it. I'm going to go check it out. And then maybe we can talk a little, uh, little snippet of it here next week. Ah, Wednesday. I like that. Eastern. We'll see you guys there. Josh, let's get on out of here, man.